Hello, my friends. Today, Joel is talking to Dave, host of the Business of Tech podcast. And they discuss how there's rarely one right way to do something. Benefits of bootstrapping your business and having strong fundamentals. And why it requires a whole lot more than just laptops and webcams to enable true work from anywhere. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. So I shoot all my videos and, and my daily show, I shoot from the spot. So it, it splits. I do a, you know, the daily show goes out as a five minute piece and it gets rolled together into a, you know, 25, 30 minute piece that comes out on Fridays as a weekly YouTube version. Okay, but are you airing the five-minute segments on some platforms? Yeah, so those come out as the audio podcast. So every single day I drop a five to seven-minute podcast, which is the daily audio version. That same version rolls out as a video show once a week. So depending on how people like to consume their content. Yeah, and what's that podcast about? So the, the core idea is, is if you're in IT services, you need to get a sense of what's going on in the news. So I do, it's a news show, but I include with every segment a piece called Why Do We Care? Which is where I give some commentary on why I selected the story or what I think is important about it or what it illustrates about a trend. So it's a daily news and commentary show for IT service providers. And there's enough news in IT services to support a show? I believe so. I've been at it more than three years and some now, and I have something to talk about every single day. You know, oftentimes it's it's elements of tra- following up on trends or new research or new data. It's incremental changes. But if we look across cybersecurity, there's always something, there's always something going on. A new announcement, a new warning. I'm tracking legislation and all the privacy laws that you have to track. I'm tracking all of the changes in return to work. Oh, by the way, we had a whole like pandemic during this time. So there was all the changes, the health information you needed to know and the technology stuff you needed to know. There's market condition stuff. Oh, there's announcements of, you know, what's happening with credit or employment or hiring. There's always something going on and keeping a track of all these various threads. It's a lot of work for providers. So that's what I'm trying to do to, to give them some insight. Oh, nice. Okay, so I had I had made it more narrow in my head. I thought you were only reporting on like managed service provider industry specific news. No, it's got to be much broader than that. And in fact, I actually think a lot more about what they need to know in terms of dealing with their customers versus what they need to know on their back office. Like, you know, I don't spend a lot of time worrying about the tools they're using or the partnership programs they're leveraging. That stuff's really easy to find. It's much more about what do you need to know to be effective in delivering your services as you point toward your customers. Okay. Okay. And how long have you been doing this for? About three years now. And it started as, as a, you know, I, I was an MSP for a decade. I, was, I worked for software vendors for another eight, delivering tools to those providers. And then now this job for about three years. Is this your full-time gig? This is all I do. <laughs> How have you monetized it? Um, so the way I look at it is, so I sell ads. It's, it's really kind of that simple. I've got a couple of different models. Most of my revenue comes from ads. I have some Patreon supporters that people support stuff directly. I also do some consulting, but the vast majority of how I make money is ads. And, and the way I really boil it down to is there is actually some value 
in an ad in a world where everyone wanted to do webinars and these long extended piece of fluff content, I said, you know what I can do? I'm going to boil down to actually five to seven minutes of stuff you actually care about, and I'm going to embed one ad, a 30-second pitch for somebody telling you about their widget. There's nothing wrong with that. (laughs) There's value in knowing about what somebody's up to in a short bit versus having to sit in some long 30-minute fluff, hour-long fluff webinar, which, by the way, we've all sat in those things, where the content really isn't that good and you really turn out realizing that's really just an embedded ad. Yeah, there's like this weird webinar crowd. So we did some sponsored webinars at my business, you know, several years ago. Like 400 people showed up in like zero conversion. And it was like all in their target market. And I was just like, all right. So I started digging into the the audience more. And it was a lot of competitors and people who just like were hanging out, listening to it as maybe sort of like some type of entertainment. So I'm not a fan of the the sponsored webinars anymore. Yeah, and, and I so and the other piece that I've kind of rebelled about is during my my vendor time, I spent eight, you know, eight years flying around the world, hitting my million miles by walking on a stage and I would do market analysis and walk providers through. And by the way, these these events also were an, an element of trying to collect leads and drive leads. And I I got that world and I said, you know what, I think this isn't sustainable sustainable. And I also think digital is going to do better. I think we're going to be able to do better. And and I say now, you know, I talk to more people in an average week than I would have in months of traveling, pounding pavements and going out to conferences. I can do more in a week than I could do in months. That's the difference now. And I can do it in a much more affordable way for those that want to do some messaging with me. So that's the basic business model with what I'm doing. And it's maybe a little naive or optimistic on my part, but I kind of believe that like good analysis people will listen to and they recognize that I have to pay the bills. <laughs> so they're okay with it. Yeah, and often if you trust, if you like know, like, and trust the person that you're consuming content from, then they're typically picking relevant ads. And if you're doing it right, then it's not super annoying. And also there is a show or two that I'll listen to that has like an ad from the host. And it's cool with me mostly because the ad is almost always connected to something that's like happening or something that's new. So I'm either learning about something new or some sort of advancement. And so if it's interesting, then it really works out well for, for the audience. Yep. And that's my business model. Uh, and I don't mind, you know, for those that are interested, the economics are good because the value of a B2B ad is just way higher than a B2C. I know I'm targeting my content and what I produce for owners, business leaders, the people that are writing the checks for significant investments from a technology perspective. And my advertisers want to reach that audience. And so I help them do that. That's brilliant. What made you want to start the podcast? Like, what was the moment that you were like, I need to, I need to start doing this show? Well, it's, it's an element of like, it, it's the, the trend of my career. So when I left, when I sold my managed services business, uh, everyone said, oh, are you going to be a consultant? And I was like, I don't want to be a consultant. I actually want to keep learning and I want to deliver some value. And I went to the software vendor side and, and I did two different companies during, during that eight year run. And it was time to do something else. And I hit that same kind of entrepreneurial moment of like, oh, what am I going to do next? And I have the same question. Oh, are you going to be a consultant? It's like, no, I want to actually figure out a way to deliver some value that's different from that. And I respect for those that deliver consulting, but it wasn't me. And I looked and I knew I was a buyer for a long time, 
because when I was at my, the two software roles, my job was about helping IT services companies be better. Basic premise was that if we helped them be better, they'd buy more software. It's a pretty basic idea, right? But it actually really works. So I would, would help them grow their business or would help them identify new opportunities or how to market or how to sell. And I said, you know what I'm looking at when I looked at the space and how I delivered content, I said, you know, I think there's an opportunity to go back to basics on kind of journalism. And I'm still a little uncomfortable with calling myself a journalist, although I'm really trying hard. I'm more co- more comfortable with analyst, but but I, I'm an aspiring journalist, I guess is a better way to say it. And I said, there's some real value in, in what good journalism is, like going out there, covering a story, but also then giving the analysis, which is what I think I'm good at. And I said, that could be useful. And I think that's interesting. And I also knew what I was as a vendor, as a buyer. It's hard to get your message out there in a crowded space. And I said, if I can combine those two knowledge, hey, I'm pretty good at the analysis. I'm pretty good at the the news piece and understanding the markets. Oh, and I understand what these vendors need from a delivery perspective. I bet I can put those two things together and make a business out of it. And here I am three years later. Nice, nice. And do you have like sales team? What's your and we can cut this part out, but I'm just curious. You're looking at the whole company. <laughs> oh, nice. all right, cool. It's it's all me. I do that. I do. I I'm the writer. I'm the producer. I do do I, I do everything myself. I work with a with a couple of you know, my wife's a video producer, so she helps me with a big, good portion of that production stuff. I've got some people that I work with that I outsource components of the work to, but. From a sales perspective, yeah, that's all me. Um, and so I so I sell the packages, I put it all together, and then I write and produce the podcast too. That's amazing. Well, we, sh- we should have another call sometime because, you know, I went through that as well. Um, but I don't go as far, I don't call myself a journalist. I've got smart research team who asks some interesting questions. <laughs> but I myself, I liken me to like a fairly advanced monkey. Like, like I can ask some questions, I can talk to some people, I can hang out, but um, we haven't gone the whole like dark net diaries, deep journalism yeah, and I'm, style. Yeah, that's not me either. I'm much more comfortable with analyst. Like I'm, I'm definitely view myself as an analyst, but I keep reminding myself that I, if I aspire to be a journalist, that's the right direction. Like I'm doing it right when I'm going that way. Your heart's in the right place. Yes, exactly. Right. And I've, I've even gone to great lengths. Like I've got a, there's a big ethics statement on my website. Like I actually have posted like, this is how I operate the business. So, you know, my financial whole, like I, cause I have stock in my old company, right? Like that I, that I was a vendor at. I think it's important that people know that because I still cover those companies. So it's posted on my website. Like here's the, here's the way I make money. Here's what I do sell. Here's what I don't sell. This is what I will do. This is what I won't do. And these are my ethic guidelines, and I talk about it at the end of every show. There's like this show was written under ethics guidelines available on this website. Nice. You should put a little asterisk on there. Be like, if you got all the way to the bottom, you probably need a new hobby. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> I hope there are people that, that care that much. Like, you just kind of have to laugh. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually not a bad idea. We have our rule for like sponsors is, um, we first start with like all the products we use and then go contact them. And we're like, hey, we actually like your product. It's super easy for us to say we love it because we've been using it. Right. I'm also a little lucky in that. So at the last job, one of my roles was actually like building the integrations programs, right? So I I know all of these other 
reps at these other companies. I was pretty well known. I'm pretty reasonably well known within my little corner of the universe. Um, Dave's famous. I, li- I like to laugh and it's called channel famous where it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> over, over in my small little, little portion of the world, I'm well known, but it does not translate to anything real. But that also meant that I know all the right people to call when it was a matter of self. So, I mean, I've got advertisers like Cisco, Trend Micro, <laughs> Acronis. I mean, these are these companies that you know because I've been doing business with them for 10 years prior. Oh, yeah. Relationships are everything. And I'm household famous. <laughs> Everybody in my household knows me. <laughs> and they all like me. And they all want something from me. <laughs> I always call it sort of channel famous. And, and there's this element of... Because you know, I did this the, the conference circuit for such a long time. And my wife would go with me sometime. And I would walk around and I would talk to all these people. And I would know everybody. And, and she'd, she'd laugh. And she goes, yeah, they, they kind of all know you there. But when we go you know, anywhere that matters, no one knows who you are. <laughs> it's like, that's exactly the yep. humbling kind of response that you need to get from your from your spouse. <laughs> be like, yep. you're famous in this very insignificant portion of the world. Just remember that that it is just that corner. <laughs> yes, so. and it's that's a fun realization too. Because I would go on like these like mini tours, right, and do a bunch of conferences back to back, and you're going backstage, and everybody like it's really easy, and then people will line up to talk to you after the talk. Oh yeah, exactly. Right, and then <laughs> you're like in Starbucks, and it's just like, <laughs> right, or, or or something weird. Nobody cares. Nobody yeah. cares, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Where you just like talk to this big room, and you just did this whole presentation, and you get all this like recognition, and it's like, and then you go to the coffee shop, and nobody knows who you are. That's exactly the way that it is. And I always try and remember that. It's like, that is not famous. That is just doing your job. Oh, yeah. I've talked to some other people, like household name type people, and they say it's the same thing. They're like, yeah, when you're at home, it is exactly the same as when you're at home right now. Mm -hmm. And when you have your group of friends, it is exactly like nobody cares. You're just judged based off of your character in context of your relationship to them. Which is which by the way, I think is super healthy. Like that's that's important to be that way and to recognize that like let's put this all in perspective. <laughs> just- oh yeah. So speaking of this, I love that by the way you introduced me to this term channel famous. Let's talk a little bit about reputation and your public figure in your industry and how has this sort of impacted? Well, I guess I kind of know how it impacted your career because you're you're doing this now full time. But let's give some insight or advice to people who kind of want to be more well known in their space. What should they be doing or thinking about? It's a great question to sort of to think about. So for me, it was always about just taking advantage of opportunities to to help others. Really, that was what it came down to. When I when I first started running my my MSP. I attended a lot of things, right? Because I wanted to learn and I wanted to understand what other people were talking about. And then I realized, well, I have some ideas too, so I'm going to put that together in a way and present those. And in, in early part, it was, I put in applications every time there was a call to speaker, I put in the application and I gave my ideas too and I got selected some and then you start doing it. It's actually even easier now because you have these amazing things called cameras and microphones and we can all do it online and you can start sharing your stuff very openly. And that's just how I started doing it. And, you know, it's the very typical, like, it took 15 years to be an overnight success kind of thing, right? This is the, I've been doing this for a very long time. (laughs) Like going out there and talking and presenting and writing and blogging and all of those things. I started doing that back in 2005. 
and here I am, you know, this many years later with actually doing it full time, but it took this long to get there. But you have to just start. And I look at it and say, like, just focus on the things that you actually can deliver some value on and have some insight and expertise in. And that does not have to be everything. <laughs> you do not have to weigh in on everything. Know what you are good at and weigh in there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I just ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> no, but when I when I started this whole thing, the person that I looked up to or looked at was uh, Gary Vaynerchuk. Yeah. Big marketing guy online. And he was talking about just share what you know to somebody who doesn't know that. Because to make it into like an engineering software analogy, it's like once you know how to do Hello World and boot some sort of environment up, there are so many people that don't know how to do anything of that nature that don't even know how to open up a terminal or they don't know about brew or they, they know like zero. And so you can actually become an educator just on learning that basic stuff. And some of the smartest people I've gotten to talk to that I've, that I've gotten to bring on the show, like authors and things like that. I was like, how did you write that book on Ruby? And he's like, oh, I didn't know anything about it. So I, I write a book to learn about the topic. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, now you're seen as a world-class expert. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, and that really is, it really where it's come from is you just have to help, just have the vision of helping things. My, my first IT services business was really just the idea of, well, we're going to help people with their technology. That was the job. And I'm actually a bit, bit of a believer in Bob Berg's book, The Go-Giver. And one of the principles in there is, is always deliver more in value than you're paid. Mm. And so if you're always delivering value, the money does find a way to flow. Like it flows back in. And I, I just think about that all the time. Is I just work really hard to make sure that I'm delivering a lot of value every day. And people will reward that. The universe will re reward it karmatically or I'll get, get paid for that kind of expertise. But if I'm always delivering a little bit of value, I'm doing something right. And if you, if you think about it from that perspective, you'll always go far. And I also then, particularly recently, is I, I try and push more toward actually having an opinion and a, and a perspective on something, but not holding it so dear that I'm not willing to deconstruct it or or change my own mind on things. I think the, the thought process and just deciding how I came to the conclusion is actually more interesting than the conclusion itself. <laughs> yes, because we have 100,000 years of exchanging stories. And so our brains are like, Really able to accept stories. Exactly. So I, I in particularly, you know, in the past couple of years, I've been, I've been very, I make I like to make bolder statements about things, but it's more about the analysis of why I came to that statement that's more important to me. And I always end, end the thinking with the, and if you think I'm wrong, please go forth and make more money by proving me wrong. <laughs> like just, that's a completely fair way in the marketplace of ideas to show that that I'm completely wrong. And I will celebrate that because I think there's more than one answer. I think somebody could take my idea and do something incredible with it and make a bunch of money. And I think somebody else might go, oh, Dave's totally wrong, and do something completely different and also make a ton of money. And that's more the point versus right for right's sake. Yeah, and that makes it hard when giving advice too, because people want to know the recipe. And I'm always trying to think, you know, I spent a long time, Dave, out there trying to like figure out like the, the formula I could give them. And the only thing I can come up with that's like universally accepted 
far as all my experiences, is persistence. Like if you just decide you're not going to give up and you know the direction that you want to head, I have never seen somebody like make a commitment to like do this until they die and work as hard as they possibly can and go for some specific direction or some specific goal and they'll not hit it. Right. You just have to keep going. And I'll couple that with it with a willingness to fail is okay. Like you're not going to get it right on the first try. Nobody gets it right on the first try. They don't get it right on the 50th try or the 100th try. You just need to make sure that you get it right over time. If you just keep working at it, you will figure out a way to solve the problem. You've just got to have the, as you said, the persistence to do it, but also then understanding the the iteration that happens over that process. You will learn the right and wrong way to implement that over time. I can give you my recipe. It only works for me, and it generally only works over time. But I hope you can take that idea and adopt it to your own way of methodology and use that. And those patterns of recognition is what we actually do find in trends, right? So we can find a bunch of trends by looking for those patterns of things that work over and over again for lots of people. And we can take that experience and do something with it. But you're exactly right. Like Ultimately, it's just about keep working at it. Yeah, because I was like totally, completely average. And I, I heard this quote... I was expecting like, you know, you see in the headlines and the tech crunches and all that, you know, series A, series B, exit for however many billions of dollars. And I was watching that and I was like, man, I've been writing code for like a decade. What are these people doing that's like, you know, different than me? And then I found out it was a lot to do with relationships. And so that's one of the reasons why I started the podcast. But when I wasn't being an exceptional person, I I was super frustrated because I wasn't getting those results. And I started researching on like, what I could do better. And I came across this quote by Jim Rowan that said, the most frustrating thing in the world is expecting above average results without being an above average person. (laughs) And I was like, oh, that's what I'm doing. I'm expecting these amazing whirlwind type of results. And I'm just like barely showing up every day and just coasting. And so then I switched and I thought it would take me, you know, 10 or 20 years, but it didn't, you know. I mean, obviously from the moment I decided it didn't, I had over a decade of experience in my industry when I decided to really start you know, going after it. But it only took a couple years until I got as far as I thought I would get in my lifetime. Well, the other thing, that, the other thing to really focus on, and, and it's because we get real wrapped up in this in tech, particularly these days, is you hear about all these, you know, the valuations and raising all the money and all of that kind of stuff. And what they don't often talk to you about is, is the fact that like most investment portfolios also have a long list of failures. Like, money that was lost. I like to actually push back, and I do this kind of in fun, but very intentionally. Investors are not really investors. They're actually gamblers. They are just Mm -hmm. taking a bunch of money and they're putting it out on the, the roulette table and they're hoping they come up a winner. But they actually lose more often than they win. They just have to win big those few times to offset all those losses. But nobody else likes to likes to talk about the losses because they're just not as fun and they're not as glamorous and we don't, you know, we're not in a society that glamorizes failure. But by the way, all those investors, you know, gamblers, have lost a ton of money too. Like a ton of money by being wrong. And that doesn't mean that they stop gambling. It just means that they over time get somewhat better at that. But they're much more like baseball hitters from an average perspective than they are, you know, perfect nailers. Like they're really happy with like a batting average of like 300. 
they're really happy with that. Yeah. Remember that when you talk about all these people that are doing all these investment rounds and I've made, raised all this money and the investors, it's like, eh, the gamblers like them. Okay, but you know what? We don't talk about all the ones they missed, but that's okay too. I'm not criticizing the failures. Just don't view it as this lens of perfection because it isn't. Oh, yeah. And I also you know, started making more friends that had companies like that. And I started talking with them and I found that I would much rather grow from cash flow and be like the largest shareholder and have control of the board and take the company where I want to take it than the amount of red tape that comes with all of those rounds. I mean, it's absurd. They restrict like everything. And you basically are an employee of the collection of VCs that have invested in you. I am so old school when it comes to businesses. I like bootstrap. I like like old school principles of revenue and profit margin. And like, and I, I like, I want to see basic business fundamentals. Like I'm way into all of that. And I'm much more interested in celebrating somebody who runs a one, a five, a $10 million business who did that and built that than I, and, and just, you know, run it at a a wonderful 17% margin, right? They were like, they're dropping that level to the bottom line. I'm much more interested in that than somebody that has taken all these massive risks and massive investments and is just pumping out cash. Because I think those smaller businesses, besides being like fundamentally useful, there's so many more of them and they drive so much more of the economy. I'm much more interested in that success than I am in these one-off big ones. Absolutely. And plus they have more experience at the, the entry level because if you just raise a bunch of capital and you start hiring a bunch of people, you get really good at what hiring people. But as far as operating the business from a lower level, like when you're in it and you're the first employee and then you hire people and then you're going forward, you get so much experience like with all of how everything needs to be set up to scale it. And you get to spend so much time down there. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's, it's I love that space. You know, and it comes back to like, why do I do what I do now? It's like I love those bootstrap fundamental entrepreneurs that are doing it with their own cash and that are just building fundamentally sound businesses. I'm so much more interested in that. I think it doesn't get enough attention because it's maybe not as flashy or it doesn't hit the big numbers. But man, it's just so much more rewarding. And I enjoy that space so much more. Oh, yeah. I mean, I see people get excited and they all congratulate each other on their rounds. I'm, before, I'd be like, oh, it's so cool, so cool. <laughs> and I'm like, they just sold part of their company. They just lost a piece of their business. Right, right exactly. Like, <laughs> look, if I want everyone to be successful, whatever that means to them and whatever they define success as. But I want, I'm much more interested in this version of it where it's just very fundamentals based. Like, are you bringing in revenue that is solid? You're delivering more value by that. It's, you're, you're putting that into the organization through basic fundamentals. Like those never go out of fashion. And there's a reason for that. Absolutely. Now, we got really far without even mentioning the name of your podcast. <laughs> but we'll put it in the description and everything. Yeah, too. sure. The name of the show is The Business of Tech. It comes out, yeah, I said, every, every business day, uh, I do five to seven minutes of news and commentary with the hat of, like, what do you need to know if you're in the business of delivering technology to customers? What do you need to know that's ha- that's going on right now? And there's a ton of stuff. Like, we, there's so much stuff in terms of that legislation. There's tons of stuff going on in terms of market trends. We do end up talking about a ton of security. I freely admit I'm really interested in the, tr- the transformation of work that's going on right now. I think that's just a fundamentally interesting 
and an area full of opportunity to be explored. And these are the kinds of topics that I cover on the show. What's happening in the transformation of work? Well, everyone's super obsessed with this idea of what hybrid means. Like, does it mean, are we in the office two days a week, three days a week? But what I actually think the interesting trend is, is those that are figuring out how to deliver work, not in the old way. Can we do it asynchronous? Can we do it without bringing people together at the same physical space and time? Can we measure performance truly based on output versus performance theater of being in the office? There's a lot of of old rules that have been broken down by the two-year experiment we all conducted on one one another called the pandemic. And some really interesting space to break down the old idea of work, and in particular, the old idea of the way management was done. I think that space is rich for really new ideas. It's very much technology-enabled, which is why I'm so focused on it on my show, because anybody who's delivering technology services should be super involved with it. But true work from anywhere isn't just throwing people out with a laptop and a camera. It's about building the culture and system around it to allow individual workers to be much more independently effective. That's a totally different management style. It requires different culture and investments and measurements. And that's hard. Like, that's not easy to do, and it's transformational for a lot of businesses. But any, I always quip, anything in mystery, there is margin. So anything hard means if we do it well, we can make a lot of money doing it well. Yes, and for me, as far as building the company remotely that we've done, it, it started in person, and then the pandemic happened, and then it went remote, and then we made a conscious decision to keep it remote. And... Like you said, it requires you to just adjust your processes as a business, puts a premium on having people who are driven and who you don't have to babysit. So for a long time, I, I had a lot of frustration, Dave, with like babysitting and checking people and, and trying to push people and dealing with people who were up intermittent. The worst are the intermittent people that are like intermittently good. Right. It's, it's frustrating. But I eventually just got to the point where I'm like, all right, we're either going to hire the most amazing people and we're going to do like, if we're in an interview and we're doing a backflip and we want them, that's the feeling we have to get if we're going to make a hire. And so slowly but surely over the past two years, I've transitioned my company to only include those people. And that's created this really interesting sense of community where everybody can really rely on each other and they're referring their friends that also have those attributes. You know, rather than us coming up with a culture statement, and saying, this is who we are, be like this. I said, everybody, I just want you to write like your favorite thing about what, how we work together. And, and we extracted the culture values out of that, which I thought was, was pretty interesting. But yeah, you're right. We had to change everything about how we work, the tools we used, how we communicate with Slack, how we do connecting. We still get together once every three months for like a dinner and then like a team activity the next day. And then it's like a half day. So, you know, we see each other for a couple hours every quarter and it's not mandatory, but that way we still get to meet in person and get that benefit of getting to know each We always play this game of how tall is that person. <laughs> <laughs> right. But And your, your story is exactly what I'm illustrating. Like it, cha- it also changes the way you manage people, the way you measure them, the expectations of communication. You know, I, I like to 
you know, I'm a, I'm a good geek at heart. So like you, you think of office space, right? The Lumbergs of the world can't roam the office and call that management. That's why I think so many organizations are screaming, we must go back in the office because they're lazy managers and they don't want to do the hard work required to be transformational. Some organizations may not do it, right? But I also think by doing it, it unlocks all kinds of potential and creates much stronger, better, agile organizations. And it's why I spend so much time on this. And by the way, it's all technology enabled, right? It requires good technology, but the technology has to be implemented well in a culture that supports it with process that supports it or it doesn't work. Oh, yeah. We made a lot of mistakes along the way trying to figure it out. The hardest positions to hire are new positions because they're not like already known on what the output can be for that position. So we're always over-communicating when we're bringing on or doing something new. But hiring for an existing position is super easy because like here's the spreadsheet, here's the output, here's week over week that what it should be. And it makes it really great for the employee because it takes all the mystery out of am I doing a good job and just focus on hitting those those goals. And then you have to make those goals simple enough to not have it be such a pain to maintain the data collection of them. And so it's definitely more of an art than it is a science, figuring out how to get those things right, just the whole trial selection variation process. Well, good people management is art, not science. Yeah. <laughs> now, now there is science to it. I do believe that there's method and process and measurement that can be done to it. But to be dismissive of people, people are messy that always implies art. <laughs> oh, you're exactly right. I had a conversation the other day. We were talking about managing people and they were like, how do you, how do you teach that? Like if I'm going to develop, a, you're, let's say you're a team member of mine, Dave, and I'm going to develop a relationship with you. Well, from my experience, my advice would be to get to know Dave and get to know what's going on, like what drives him and what's, you know, a little bit about his personal life and all of that. But that's all highly subjective to how like I execute that, <laughs> right? Like if I start interrogating right. you about your personal life, that's very different. So it's this weird art where like people can interpret it very much the wrong way, but at the same time it's like a requirement to sort of have that, you know, relationship because I don't believe you can lead people without knowing who they are and what drives them. Yep. And by the way, a lot of that is not necessarily what happens in the business context. Oftentimes we have too many of these business conversations forgetting that these are people with all of the bits outside. Like, what's their family like? Like, like what do they want out of life? What's their situation going on? And you always have to have a space for understanding people as a whole and their motivation being much more than just the things that they're doing in their work role. Yeah, because how do you teach people how to be a great person and care about people? You don't really teach that. <laughs> <laughs> well, they do. It's usually called parenting. Um, <laughs> I have two and I have a third on the way. And I will tell you 100%, I became a significantly better manager and leader after having kids because having kids is similar to the old mainframes that you could walk in and see the transistors and see everything because everything is happening that a human does, but like on this magnified level, all the emotions are magnified, all the dis everything is just really, really visible. And it's intangible, sort of weird statement. But yes, having kids definitely affects your ability to lead people. Right. And, I, and by the way, and I don't have kids. And so and my, my wife and I, that was, that was one of those bits where I always describe it as it's an active decision. Mm -hmm. 
And two decisions came immediately after that. The first was, if, it's, if you're actively deciding that, you have to like do the fun things. You can't just sit at home. So we're active travelers and we, we go to concerts and we, we like do the things that two people without children should do with that time. But the second thing we made a commitment to is it also means you have to be a good family member. So I'm very proud of being an uncle. My wife is very proud of being an aunt. And you have to be involved with the rest of the family because I think that's the other bit where I get that experience of helping for the same reasons that I like to help others in business. I like to help my nieces and nephews as much as I can because that also makes me a, a better person. Like I learn about how to communicate with people and what education is important and that's, those kinds of things. So I, I really do value those skills and you don't have to necessarily be a parent to even embrace those. Yeah, you don't have to be a direct parent. I would say that, to your point, community. Like if you're in community and and there's children and there's varying degrees of relationships, you can pick up a lot as well. Like we participate in our local church and then mm-hmm. I see, you know, a lot of that there. Like when even when we're hanging out with our people that uh, friends that have kids and our kids aren't necessarily there, you can pick up a whole lot by being I guess the premium Dave would be like on relationships, right? Like if you have a lot of well-maintained relationships and you're exploring, I would say one of the things that's really interesting to me is like after I met my first hundred people from the podcast, like everything changed, right? Because before that I had barely known anybody. I was definitely more reserved and quiet. And I had a handful of really close, like five or six really close business relationships. And that was it. And then I talked to a hundred, I interviewed a hundred people and I was like, man, I don't know how to say it. But if I could just get everybody to interview 100 people <laughs> and get to understand <laughs> and have these deep conversations, not like, hi, hello at the cash register, like hour-long conversations about life or leadership or technology. If you could get people to talk to enough other people, it would you just get this massive benefit. Humans are social creatures. Yeah. It's important to embrace that <laughs> and know that that's, that is actually some of the real value because I always like to, to to connect this back back to the to the workplace like remember that holistically you know that when we talk about the the future of work like I actually think that some of the what, what's going to happen with workspaces is exactly what you've just described like in your own business you talk about getting people together on like a, a quarterly basis I think these spaces are going to become much more about collaboration and socialization rather than sitting at a desk to be a task worker. And that will require new things. And by the way, that can also be done electronically. You can build entire communities online. You know, we've, we've alluded to, hey, I'm a video gamer, right? That's a whole space where community is built entirely online. And it can go good and bad, too. <laughs> That's a whole space that has ups and downs. But you can grow really positive communities that come out of online. But it has to be. All of these are deliberate choices. Yes, and that's why I know I'm bringing up our company a lot, but it's it's you know what I spend a lot of my time on. But we do this thing where oh, sure. where we um, are very explicit. Like we're really good with our calendars. It's part of our culture. Like everybody's really we use our calendars like our task list essentially. So we all have like blocks and predictable things. And like let's say I hate the idea of, like the feeling that you're chained to a desk. So we have a, a huge premium on hit your KPIs, do the things you need done, make sure that there's enough time in your day to like you know be able to to live your life right and then have a very clear start to end start and end of every day and then when you're not at work 
be not at work. And if anything is like hanging over, you didn't get it complete by the time work is over, let it go to the next day. It'll be there for you. Because what I was finding is if you don't set that as the expectation that you need to stop working when work is over, people will continue to work. They'll do it to sort of like want to stand out or to get extra things done or whatever. So I've been very, very clear with people like to like stop. And the reason is, is because if they're working past the work hours, they're not investing in their relationships. And then that affects the quality of work during work hours. Yep. This is a marathon, not a sprint. Oh, yeah. I mean, my, my big thing is, is and I'll, I'll say for my own work habits, like my devices have nearly no notifications at all. I always laugh and go, there's always more email. Yeah. So why do I care what it, to be alerted on its arrival? There is always more email. So, <laughs> so I turn off all those notifications. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I use Slack and Discord and a bunch of those tools, but for the most part, notifications just off. I think we just became best friends. <laughs> <laughs> Let's, I'm not, I don't want to be interrupt driven. Like it just doesn't like, like and, and there is very, very few things that are actually true crisis. And if you treat that everything is a crisis, nothing is a crisis. But instead, you just go like this, we just will work on things in the, the, the correct priority. We'll work on them at the time that makes sense. There is no real emergency because I want to have space for actual emergencies like people's health, their families, like those kinds of things. Oh, and by the way, the occasional time when there truly is an emergency where we want to do something about it. But that should be so rare as to almost be non-existent in the business world if you're doing it right. Yeah. No, I I have never met anybody else that does that. So I think April or May when the pandemic happened, like that time of year, I had more time, right? Because and I was researching about how to do my do not disturb during podcast episodes. Like, how can I improve it or set it up better? And then I saw my, they had just come out with screen time or something. And I saw how many pickups I was doing a day for notifications and all of this stuff. And I said, well, what if I just leave it? Like, what if I just turn them all off? Like, and just be in do not disturb 24 seven. And so I said, all right, you know, what? I'm going to try it for 30 days. I'm going to turn off all my notifications. <laughs> Quickly, I realized I need to keep text on and call on because my wife needs to be able to yes. get through to me. And so I did that and I haven't, I haven't gone back. So if my team knows that I check Slack when I sit down and I'm doing my work and you know, when Slack's minimized, there's, I'm not getting involved with Slack, I'm doing my work. And then if there's a problem, we have this great culture at my company, Dave, where people just call me. Like if there's something right. that they need, they just, call. so we're constantly like calling each other throughout the day. If, if we need things that are urgent or, you know, a client needs something like immediately, uh, you know, they'll, they'll give me a call or whatever it is. And, Honestly, I like that way better than handling like I yeah. I'm I'm exactly like you know, it's funny because I I was, you know, before I, I have a podcasting mode for my which makes sure everything is off, with actually the exception of my wife. Mm -hmm. Like she can break through the she can break through the focus areas because I because if she needs to talk to me, that's actually important. <laughs> it's, it's, and she has chosen to call me at a time when we are not together. That means she's made a deliberate choice that that's important. But otherwise, there's not a there's not a crisis that requires it. Yeah, I'm I'm a big believer in sort of no notifications. I I haven't had email notifications in years, and most of the interrupt kind of stuff is you know very very targeted and deliberate. I'm a big believer of, if I'm a Mac guy and an iOS guy, so I've actually set up all the focus modes, and I even have down to like personal ones where like if I'm hanging out. Of, my modes are set up when I'm at certain friends' houses. It goes into personal mode, and only this collection of four or five friends can text during that time. 
because we're hanging out. I want to spend time with them and I don't want to be interrupted. Uh, so I use the, those to, to be very focused and very in the moment. Yeah, they've gotten so much better now. You can create your own custom ones and do it. Before, like it started out with just a switch, right? Just like do not disturb. Mm-hmm. And then it got so much more feature rich. And I'm, I'm super happy that the, that the world is leaning that way. And by the way, as leaders, like if we're going to, you have to own that responsibility if you want your people to do it too and the people that you work with. And if that's the way you do it, you have to embrace that. You know, and it was, you know, it's one of the things where when I go on vacation, you know, I usually try and spend one a year, once a time a year and I turn off, turn off everything. Like I don't read email when I'm away for a few days because I want to disconnect time. I'm very deliberate about like a long out of office that tells you like, here's how to get help. Like, here's all the ways, all the systems that I've done. You shouldn't need me for anything while I'm gone because I've done a really bad job if I'm so vital that I can't step out for a moment. You, you really want to make yourself so that you aren't that so, that integral to it. And anyone wants to be able to step out, out for a moment and do what's important to them. Oh, yeah. So from five o'clock, so after work, until after dinner is no phone time. Mm-hmm. So we, my wife and I would take our phones, put them in the cupboard, and then we just play with the kids and they love no phone time, right? And that <laughs> way, you know, we're consciously making the decision of, okay, I'm going to put away my professionally engineered distraction device yeah, so, that right, I can, exactly. <laughs> so I can focus on my kids. And because for a while there, we just found each other like sitting on the couch, like, on the phone and the kids would be crawling on us and like trying to knock the phones out of our hands and get our attention. I'm just like, this is not who we need to be. So we instituted that and it's worked pretty well. Yeah, I'm a believer in that kind of stuff. And by the way, you know, back back to my, my basic premise, if you're building and using technology correctly, it should enable this kind of behavior and it should make it easier to do, not harder. Yes, yes. Are there any topics that we didn't get to? I saw we're coming up close to time here and I want to make sure that we cover everything that, that you wanted to cover. Is there anything we haven't touched on? You know, we, we've covered a, a bunch of this stuff. You know, the, the, I know the, the one thing that I, I want to make sure that, that I've relayed is I know a lot of your audience are those CTOs and those people that are working within organizations. I w- wanted to sort of the last bit to cover for me was this, this thought of, look, I get the CTO role and it's very internal. IT services companies are partners. That's these. You should not view the 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 audience that I spend my time thinking about. First off, I would say you're part of that CTO because you deliver IT services. But those companies that do this delivery, they are partners more than competitors. You need to bring in those that area of expertise, and this is an area that I've marinated in for a very long time. You know, these are organizations that are dedicated to delivering those services for customers that need help, of which you are one. So, if you're an if you're a CTO in an organization, you should be looking at this space, saying, "Yeah, this is a way to extend my capabilities and bring in expertise," versus viewing it as a competitive space. Nice, nice. Yeah, we do that. We do that a lot too. Like. With Slack, we don't build our own Slacks. We, we leverage Slack, right? <laughs> and then I'm always looking for ways to not build things from scratch and to find people who eat, sleep, and breathe it. One of the things we started doing after we did sponsorships, we sort of like sold all of our inventory and then we started making podcasts for other people. So through that whole process, we learned just an absolute ton about what it's like to be a partner on somebody's team versus being a vendor um, and being really focused on that. So, yep, I like the the whole partnership model and not rebuilding everything from scratch. 
Yeah, that's definitely what I mean. It's very much what I preach, and this is all a collaborative environment. And so for me, for me, that's always the answer: is just, can we find a way to make things work together? It ultimately comes down to financial alignment. I don't mind talking money on this part. You've got to find a way for everybody to be benefiting during that process. And if everybody's financial motivations and business are aligned, things will work out. It's always guaranteed because that's how the systems flow. Works really well when we can align that way. Absolutely. All right, everybody, go listen to this podcast. Go subscribe. What is it, Dave? The show is called The Business of Tech. It's easy to find at businessof.tech, the big blue button. I'm on all the podcatching platforms. And if you like the video version, you can catch it at YouTube. I'm at youtube.com slash MSP radio. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.